Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. How do you find the courage to make a major change in your life? How do you reset your values? How do you reconnect with your creative self? Designer and host of the long-running and wildly popular podcast Design Matters, Debbie Millman explores invention, truth-telling and inspiration in a fascinating conversation hosted by Yumi Steins. Recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022. Hello, thanks for being here. Let me introduce my very special guest, Debbie Millman is a writer, designer, educator, artist, brand consultant, and host of the podcast, Design Matters. She experienced a major disruption at the age of 32, when feeling like a failure and dreading going to work, she chucked it all in and restarted her career. Her tenacity, work ethic, good luck, and design instincts led to an astounding design career that is too immense to exhaustively list here, but that does include 20 years as the president of the design division at Sterling Brands, heading jobs like redesigning the Burger King logo, Tropicana Global, Gillette, jobs that were economically successful and revered, but also essentially unfulfilling to her soul. Redirecting her personal resources to focus less on branding and more on writing and broadcasting on design has given us the Debbie Millman that we know today. She is a podcasting pioneer. Um, she regularly speaks on design and branding and is one half of the power couple with her wife, fellow headliner at the All About Women Festival, Roxanne Gay. Her new book is Why Design Matters. Please welcome... Debbie Millman. Thank you so much for making the huge trip to be here today. We appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you all for being here. Hello, Sydney. So something that you said about these turning points in your life. When I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, all the things I wanted to do fell to the wayside so I could be self-sufficient and so I could survive. At that moment, the summer of 1983, (laughs) I chose a path that would provide security and not creativity or freedom. I made every choice based on fear, not power. Rather sad, isn't it? Well, it's, you know what? I think that's so many of us, isn't it? Because that's what we're all faced with. How do we make ourselves secure, but be happy at the same time? So how does a person find the courage to make a major life change? Well, I think that part of what I was doing at the time was trying to set up a life for myself that was not just secure financially, but emotionally and physically safe. I had come from a a really turbulent upbringing, very violent, um, extremely insecure. There was always a fear of not having enough of anything. Forget like love and and being taken care of by, by parents. I was actually 
really just worried about surviving. And so when I finally was able to get on my own, go to college, I never wanted to go back and I needed to be able to support myself. And so in, in thinking about that time in the summer of 1983, my lead gene, the thing that I wanted the most was safety and security. Mm -hmm. However, I was also very specific about where I wanted that safety and security to be. I was a native New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn. I lived in Queens. I lived on Staten Island. I lived on Long Island for many, many years. My dad lived in Manhattan for some years. And the one thing I knew that I wanted to do more than anything, more than any specific discipline that I wanted to go into or activity that I wanted to pursue was living in Manhattan. That's what I wanted. At the time it was, and it still is, but for somebody that was essentially unemployed and nearly unemployable, it was a, a fairly expensive place to go. So, but I wanted to do it. And, and I compromised in a lot of ways to make it happen. I lived in a tenement apartment with lots of roommates and in a place that really should have been declared unlivable, but it was New York City, so it wasn't. Um, and I wanted to do something creative, but I also needed to be able to know that no matter what, I could pay my rent every month. Mm. And so that meant getting some type of secure job that would allow for that. And though I really wanted to be an artist, you know, a full-on artist, I knew that that was not going to allow me to be able to live in a place mentally that was secure. And so I decided to go into commercial art rather than fine art because I did have some very basic skills as a commercial artist from going to college, from where I went to school. And I had worked on the student newspaper and knew that sort of very basic old school drafting table layout and design. And that's what I did. I ended up being able to get a job at the time at a cable magazine, which was kind of all the rage because in 1983, cable was still a fairly new technology. Yeah. And so I was making $6 an hour as a paste-up artist, and that, if I worked enough hours, was enough to pay my share of the rent. So there's a point where you have got security enough to start thinking about how you're dissatisfied? Not, not for the first 10 or so years. <laughs> I was really living hand-to-mouth. I mean, there were, there were months where I thought, okay, I have a choice. Paying rent, paying my student loan, Eating. Eating. <laughs> and there were times where I was just juggling, you know, how long could I not pay the rent before I get evicted? How long could I not pay my student loan before I start getting bad credit? Yep. And so on and so forth. So it was really a juggling act because $6 an hour, even if you work, you know, 60 hours a week, it's not a lot of right. money, especially when your rent is $700. So, which again, doesn't seem like a lot at the moment, but back then... It was this sort of gargantuan amount of money that I had to make every month. See, Debbie, just hearing about that stresses me out because I need to be able to pay my rent and I need to eat and I need to have a little bit of fun with my friends. Did you sort of forecast it won't always be like this or did it just feel like this is the treadmill you're on forever? That's a great question. Um, I've always had a an ability to sort of fantasize about what I want my future to be, but I've never had the ability to figure out how to make that happen tangibly. You know, I can put a goal, like you can put a goal in front of you, say, I want to um, learn Spanish. 
and then you can take Spanish lessons and you can practice and you can go to Spain or any place where they speak Spanish and, and learn. Like there are tangible things you can do. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to being happy, not so much. You know, it's very hard to say if I do this and this and this and this, that will bring me towards happiness. Mm. And in fact, one of the things that I've found to be quite interesting, one of the many, many things that Seth Godin has said in relation to something like happiness is that happiness is really just being content with what you have. It's when we seek the future thing that we think is going to make us happy, it's really pleasure. And pleasure is unsustainable. And pleasure is something that you constantly need more of. It's a constant refilling, whereas happiness is being sort of okay as is. As is in the middle of a pandemic with jet lag here in the Sydney <laughs> Opera House. We will talk hence, more. Hence the caffeine that I was <laughs> brought. Yeah, yeah, it's just subtly dosing up on um, caffeine. We will talk more about happiness within the next next hour, but I wanted to invite invite you in the audience to please submit questions to Debbie, if you wish. Um, You just go onto Slido and enter. There'll be a unique code to help you enter your question. Um, It's actually pretty straightforward. Um, And if you want to, sign your name. If you want to be anonymous, you don't have to. So you describe that time, um, this turning point in your life as being, for you, jobless, homeless and <laughs> relationshipless. No, well, no, you weren't. That was actually, so, so the summer of 83 yeah. is when I, when I sort of landed in New York and tried my very best to make this life for myself in this, ten, this really ratty tenement apartment in a job that was really in an unsustainable way to live. And I'm going to do a little talk tonight at Queer Stories and talk very specifically about an experience that I had at that moment in time, which, which um, I'm looking forward to. But the sort of packing it all in and trying to re, reboot my, my life and career really didn't happen for another 10 years. Mm. So that was at the beginning of the 90s, like 1991, 92, 92, because at that point I was already about 30 and had had this decade of what I call experiments in rejection and failure, also included a, a, a marriage um, to a man. And given that I'm now gay and came out as gay, you know, we can know why that didn't work out, you know. <laughs> Probably a few reasons. Well, there's really one significant <laughs> one. <laughs> but yeah, so here I am at, at 30 years old and had realized that my job was awful and I hated it and it was terribly unfulfilling. Um, my marriage had fallen apart. I moved out, didn't have a place to live. The place that I thought I had to live didn't work out. So I was sort of scrambling to find a place to live. So at that point, you know, I was really unemployed, not homeless in that I was living out on the street, but definitely didn't have a place to call my own and um, was essentially penniless. <laughs> so oh. it, was, it was a real struggle. But at the time, I knew part of the, the impetus in, in doing this was, A, realizing that I wasn't in love with the person I was married to and that I wasn't fulfilled by what I was doing career-wise. And I needed to figure out a way to try to turn the sort of 
path of my life in a different direction. The big issue for me at the time was I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I wanted and what I could do. I was still operating out of a, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough contacts. It was always an, I don't have enough of, as opposed to, wow, look at all the options and let's pick some. Yeah. It was more coming from, I'm worthless. I'm horrible. I have no talent. And how can I figure out a way to, to find some? So this is something that I really want to sit with because for our audience, I think a lot of us feel like we need to kick up the butt. We want to know what rock bottom feels like without going there, maybe. But also we want that sort of, we want that energy and that you get from desperation yeah, you know, to yeah. make a change. So when you're looking in the mirror and you're like, I am a loser, I have no skills, I hate my job and I don't have a relationship anymore. How do you actually craft that into something that you can work with? Well, I did really, I mean, the, the rock bottom for me mm. was a very dear friend of mine dying. My friend Brian Greenbaum died. Now, this was the 90s. It was the early 90s. A lot of people were dying of AIDS. Brian Greenbaum, very dear friend of mine, died of AIDS. And I spent a day with him a few days before he went into hospice. At the time, he was still able to walk around. It was hard for him to walk, so believe it or not, again, this was the early 90s, he used to rollerblade. <laughs> And so I spent a day with him and I am the least physically active person on the planet. Um, and I, I, I owned a pair of rollerblades and, and went around rollerblading with him. And he was so full of life that day. He knew he was dying. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to die. And a few weeks later, he died. And I hit rock bottom in that I couldn't understand why someone so full of life, so desirous of a bigger life than he was given had to die. And someone like me who hated everything about myself and kind of wanted to die, but didn't even have the sense that I could do that. I didn't have any, I didn't have the balls to do something like that was alive. And so I went into therapy and that saved my life. You know, it's taken a long time to get through the labyrinth of my own neural pathways to try to have uh, the semblance of a very good life. Mm. But that was the moment that changed everything for me. You know, Brian dying and he didn't want to die and I'm alive and I don't want to be or I don't know how to be. It's not that I wanted to be dead. I just didn't want to be in pain anymore. Mm. And so that really became the, the journey out. Realizing that you've got to maximize it, even if it sucks. No, realizing that I needed help. Yeah. Realizing that I needed help mm. and, and getting it. Just speaking of help, um, it's been all about women today, but also International Women's Day on Wednesday, and there's been a lot of talk about um, mentoring, um, the value of having a mentor when you're a young woman, but also the incredible richness you get from being a mentor. Um, you deal a lot with young people. I do. Um, in your teaching, and I was really relieved to hear you say that they're quite fearful. Oh, you, me. 
I mean, one of the things that I feel like I was put on this earth to do was to look at those people in their 20s, early 20s, like me, because I teach seniors in college and graduate students. And the common denominator, I would say that 98% of them have, is that they don't feel smart enough, pretty enough, thin enough, connected enough, have enough money. They, they are also in this place where they do not have enough. And it's my, if there's nothing more that I do on this planet that means anything, it's that I at least give them a sense that when they're about to graduate, that they have possibilities bigger than what they thought, that they are not thinking about what's impossible before they even try to see if it's possible. And so many of them are in that state right now. Yeah. I mean, I have a 20-year-old daughter, and I, all I hear is how afraid she is, how few opportunities she can see, um, yeah. and, and a willingness to kind of shrink her ambitions to yeah. make it something manageable, like maybe I'll work in a shop. Or yes, yes. Yeah. And it's the sense that they have to either find their own security. And believe me, though you might think that those types of early jobs in our lives are going to provide security, every job is hard and every job takes a tremendous amount of energy and effort. You might as well try to go for something that makes you happy because that's going to be something that is more sustainable than staying in something unhappy that makes you unhappy. And every job effort, every job seeking effort is hard. So you might as well, at least when you're in that space, try for something a little bit bigger than what you think you can get. Yeah, but people don't know what they want. I'm picturing like, you know, that game memory that you play where you set out cards and you flip them over and you try and remember what, what's underneath. Oh, like go fish. Yeah, a little bit like that, but they're all laid out all the whole deck is laid out F young people kind of flipping this and saying is this my option is this a possible future for me they don't know what's underneath the card but they don't know what they want either like it's and then you said it yourself when you were 30 you still didn't really know where your potentials right sat and also what you wanted How, like do, have you interrogated that with the young people that you met? Yeah, one of the things that I've found to be really interesting is some science work that uh, Dan Gilbert did at Harvard. And there's actually a TED talk about it. It's called The Surprising Science of Happiness. And apparently humans have a, a several different ways of approaching happiness. But before I even say that, let me just talk about one thing about the way that our brains are structured. So about 50,000 years ago, our brains underwent a, a major genetic mutation, which resulted in the brain we have today. It's a three-part brain. It's called a triune. And the oldest part of the brain is the reptilian brain. Then we have the uh, middle brain, the limbic brain, the mammalian brain, and then we have the neocortex. The, the oldest part of the brain, right on top of the spinal cord, is the reptilian brain. The reptilian brain controls all of our involuntary capability. So our digestion, eye blinking, heartbeat, all the things that we just take for granted. Like, we don't say, okay, heartbeat. Mm. Okay, stomach, digest. You know, we don't do that. It happens involuntarily in our bodies. Well, the same thing happens with any time we are faced with uncertainty, Anytime we are faced with vulnerability, anytime that we see something that we don't understand, the alarm bells ring in our reptilian brain. Hello, wake up. We're going to be nervous now. And there's no, didn't you love that voice, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what voice is that? And you, your adrenaline kicks in, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. If you were to walk across the street and nearly get hit by a car or a bus or whatever, you would not be thinking, okay, adrenaline, kick in. Now's the time. Get working. It just happens. So anytime we're faced with uncertainty, 
Anytime we're faced with vulnerability, we clench up and we are fearful. There's nothing we can do to prevent it. Nothing. So when we're looking into our futures and see that there are lots of different possibilities, but we don't know which one, we get nervous and we get scared. So back to Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert says that humans have the ability to go after happiness in two ways. One is organic happiness. You go after what you want, you get it, you're happy. Yay. Then you go after what you want, you don't get it. And this is what's really interesting about Dan Gilbert's research, is that humans metabolize any circumstance, and if you don't get what you want, humans have the ability to reconstruct something else that they want. And so while they might feel sadness or heartbreak, we can metabolize that just like we metabolize all of our other emotions and then go after something else and get what he calls synthetic happiness. The difference between organic happiness and synthetic happiness is essentially none. none. It's just that it's a slightly different way of approaching the way we approach our lives. So then there's this third area, which is you don't go after what you want and you don't get it. What happens is then you experience regret. One of the few human emotions that are not capable of being metabolized is regret. You never get over regret, ever, ever. You don't ever get closure from regret. When we talk about, you know, when we break up with somebody, if somebody breaks up with us, we have closure. Yeah. We have grief about something, we grieve, and then slowly and but surely we begin to feel less grief-stricken and we have a little bit of closure about those circumstances. But regret has no ending. We're always in would've, could've, should've. I could've been a contender. And therefore, anything we don't go after, we still will always be plagued by. You go after what you want, you don't get, you get it, happy. You go after what you want, you don't get it, you figure something else out, potential happy. The only way to really ensure that you won't be happy is to not go to after not it. Try. There you go, secret of life. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, I'm gonna keep that. Now the really interesting thing about this is that I know all this, but it still doesn't change how I operate. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you regret? Oh my God, <laughs> there's a long list of things that I regret. Yeah. I regret living a straight life for the first 50 years of my life. Um, just that idea about going after something and getting it and being rewarded or going after it, not getting it and, and readjusting that. I am thinking about um, something that you've talked about in your work, um, that outside things, mm. consumption, gathering, and I, I was thinking about your your love, your passion for design means that you see the beauty in objects. Um, you've said it, it's a hedonistic treadmill. The constant upgrade is never going to fulfill you. It isn't going to define who you are. And while I agree, and I think probably everybody here agrees, it's still very seductive to go after that thing, to go th do the shopping, get the nicer jacket or the better car and so on. So is that something that you have learned to pull back on or you've put limits on? Well, the in, the, in, it's interesting because these topics, that, you know, the last little bit that we talked about and this now, they're, they're connected in a lot of ways because it's not just a device or a pair of shoes, or a handbag, or a car, or anything that we can consume that we 
then metabolize. You know, it's also our, our, our feelings, our feelings of grief, mm-hmm. our feelings of, of also of happiness and achievement and all of that. One of the things that I'm super interested in, and I'm doing a lot of research now in a series of um, questionnaires that I've been doing on print magazine with, with various creative people is asking them, how long does the feeling of achievement and the pride of achievement last for you? And now I've interviewed at this point, I think about 70 people. The, the longest amount is three days, three days. Because so connecting this sort of big job, big promotion, big whatever with shoes, devices, whatever, we think we need these things. And then when we get them, we get that dopamine hit. And then over time, we, met- we metabolize these things as well. Dan Pink has said, you know, if, we, if our idea of happiness is the biggest flat screen TV in, in existence, we're playing a fool's game because mm-hmm. there's always going to be a bigger one. And the feeling that we have for that TV is going to metabolize. And suddenly we're going to think, oh, it's really not that great after all. Um, for anybody that's ever thought, if I only get that job or if I only get that promotion, that's it, I'll be happy. Six months later, I guarantee that everybody's thinking about, well, I was, I'm happy I was vice president for this time, but I want to be senior vice president now. I mean, I remember the first time I got to be a vice president and, and, in branding, and I was like, oh, my God, everything I've ever wanted has now happened. And then, you know, I was like, when am I going to be senior vice president? <laughs> When am I going to be president? Yeah. You know, and then you keep the only thing I never wanted was to be CEO. <laughs> no, you don't want that much work. I don't want that much pressure. No. That's really interesting about um, three days of pleasure or happiness about getting an achievement. Three days. That's the maximum. I have people that had said 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Yeah. And, I, and I've heard a lot of the people on your podcast talking about, well, and I just started to work on the next thing as soon as yeah. I wrapped up the last thing. That was so in Debbie's career. I don't know if you've seen this, but she's been turned into Lego <laughs> and a Barbie, a Mattel Barbie, who was a Design Matters Barbie, but it was essentially a Debbie Millman Barbie. Except she had this really cool headset and microphone well, for, that's for the podcast. As do you right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you get those kinds of um, forms of recognition, does that last? for 10 minutes or three days or nothing? Well, I have a, I have a twinge of happiness about those things. <laughs> Definitely do. Yep. But the, the, only, the only sustained feeling of real joy that I have about my life is being with my wife. That feels real. Everything else is something I feel like I've needed to buoy up an otherwise sort of mushy center, but being with her feels safe and home. Well, I wanted to ask you about um, your marriage, because when, when your first two marriages to men failed, you actually said on the record, I will never marry again. True. <laughs> I probably should have said I'm never marrying a man a again. man again. <laughs> um, so being happily married, so you married in 2020. Yeah. Um, has that changed your relentless drive to work? Uh, no. Because, because don't, doesn't having a live-in guaranteed playmate, as you do now that you have a wife, doesn't that kind of make you want to rush home more? 
Um, yes, yeah. it does. And, and especially because I do actually have to leave the house to go to school. And yes, it does make me want to rush home. And I do rush home and I walk really fast when I'm leaving work and I walk home. So I walk really fast and it's exciting to, to get there. And then our dog greets at me also. And it's just like this moment of coming home with so much happiness to see me. It's sort of really the best thing ever. Um, no, it hasn't changed my relentless work ethic for a couple of reasons. One, I'm also married to a workaholic. Mm. I'm also married to a really recognized genius. You know, she is one of the great intellectuals of our time. And I also am always feeling like I need to be worthy of, of that. And so I do try to do as much as I can to feel like I'm worthy of being with her. You deserve her. Yeah. Yeah. She said you're the smartest person she knows. Well, that's because she's silly. <laughs> I'm sure she... I call that love goggles, Yumi. <laughs> love goggles. Um, yeah. She also said that you're, she, she was a bit scared of you when, when you first met. Well, I have that New Yorker kind of attitude. I could see why anybody would be scared of me. Yeah. But you're both quite gentle on the inside. <laughs> so I've noticed this about you, Debbie, and I was careful to ask you backstage if, you know, if we could talk about personal stuff, but I have noticed that in your broadcasting work and your writing, in recent years you were incorporating a lot more personal stuff. Now, when you were sort of, you know, an important big wig at, at Sterling Brands, did you have to sort of compartmentalise your personal life and keep it separate from people? Yes. Not only did I compartmentalise... Mm. I just kept things outright secret. And I was so terrified of people judging me for any number of things. It wasn't just when I first came out that I was really private about that for many months before I told anybody at work because I was afraid some of my conservative clients might uh, change their minds about wanting to do business with me and with the firm. And I was really worried that that would impact the company in a way. Um, it didn't, by the way, but I still worried about it. But it wasn't just that, that I, that I kept quiet. When my second marriage fell apart, my second marriage fell apart the same month that I became a partner in the firm. And I had been really working to getting a, to becoming a partner in the firm. That to me was that, you know, after vice president and senior vice president and president, then it was like partner. And I finally got to be partner. And literally within the like two weeks of that, my second marriage fell apart. And I was so worried that uh, there were a couple of things. I was so worried that people would think, oh, she's slipping because, you know, she's going through a divorce, another divorce that I didn't tell anybody. I, and I was so embarrassed and I felt like such a failure that my marriage had fallen apart and that I wasn't wearing, you know, wasn't going to be wearing a wedding band anymore. And what did that mean that I kept it on Wow! From, for quite some time until I felt like the business was in a place where there was no way anybody could blame any downturn in the business on me or my emotions, which, you know, as a woman, I had to be super careful about. I was the only female partner. And then even later, after, after that, years later, when I had a miscarriage, I didn't tell anybody. I told people that my uncle died, and that's why I was sad. I mean, that's how much I felt like I had to keep up a certain persona and not show any weakness and not show any vulnerability whatsoever in running a business. You say that as though you're to blame or you're making bad choices, but I think that your choices are the result of the environment that you're in. 
I mean, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I have, I mean, part of the reason I didn't come out for as long as I did was because I felt so othered and so damaged as, as a young person that I was trying to just fit in my whole life, trying to prove that I was normal, trying to prove that I was as good as any number of people, any number of situations. But then when you no longer can even have a pretend life that's happy because of the silly choices and limitations you're making on your life, then things do begin to shift. And I finally did come out. The person I ended up coming out for was unwilling to be with me unless I came out. I couldn't have that secret. And I asked, you know, is it okay? Can we keep this quiet, private? Just like, no. And so I was forced to, and so I did. And it was a good thing that I did, but again, I, I, I remember telling my senior partner that I, I was coming out, and he was, he was fine with it. His son had recently come out. His son was like 20, but whatever. Um, and then when I told, I had two partners, when I told the other partner, he was like, oh, okay, well, probably now's a good time to tell you that I'm leaving my wife and dating one of our employees. <laughs> I was like, and I was worried about judgment, motherfucker. <laughs> Excuse my language. <laughs> so um, you mentioned being othered and feeling damaged. I hope this is a reasonable segue to ask, is design and the, the love of design, is it for rich people? It's not for rich people, but people that are, I don't know, I don't want to say necessarily rich, but people that are employed in design tend to make decisions for people that aren't that impact their quality of life in a big, significant way. I don't know about Australia, but I know in the United States that a lot of the benches that you see in airports or on bus stops or just in the park have barriers now between the seats. And it's not for COVID. It's so that people don't lay flat on them. I think if somebody is homeless or if somebody is unhomed, like the last thing that designers should be thinking about is preventing a way for them to be able to lay flat on something that's not the ground. So I think that we have a lot of power in the way things are designed. And I think that there needs to be a better way to be able to incorporate the needs of all people in the things that we design than we're capable or that we seem to be allowed to be doing now. Mm. Um, I'm just going to remind you that if you want to ask Debbie a question, go to sly.do and um, you can ask and submit a question there. You know, it's so interesting. We were walking through the venue today and um, the, the person that was, that was leading me was like, oh, we're in the process of, of redesigning a lot of the wayfinding in the opera house because when it was first made, there weren't a lot of decisions made about um, the way that somebody in a wheelchair for example, might be able to to be able to navigate through the opera house, and I think that it's wonderful that that's beginning to happen. But the fact that that's something, and I'm not saying that the opera house is by any means the only example here. There, every institution all over the world has to be able to take into account different bodies, different ableness, different ways of navigating through space that 
they haven't in the past. I don't know that that's necessarily so much about rich versus poor. I think it's it's about inclusive versus exclusive. And maybe that does in its foundation have something to do with rich versus poor. So I have to rephrase that. But but things need to be made much more inclusive than they are. And I, I, I confront that and see that in almost every public situation every day. Yeah. Um, so you've got a new book out, Design Matters. Why Design Why Matters. Design matters yeah. um, which, by the way, you can buy in the bookshop and Debbie will sign copies we can't have an in-person signing because of the current COVID spike, but those books will be there and hopefully signed. I want to go to um, to talk about the podcast because it's it's been such a great platform for you, but also for for people who are guests on the show. It was the show was born on February 4, 2005. It was kind of a live radio show, but six months after its inception, a, a listener said, "Why don't you make it into one of these podcast things?" So you are literally a pioneer. Of of the medium, some things haven't changed. The tagline is the same and the intro music is the same. So tell me about the, the decision to hang on to those two elements. Well, in you know, my heart, I am a brand consultant and I do have equity in those things. And so I feel like they don't need to be re redesigned in any way. I like them still. I yep. feel like there's still, I still have a lot of pride saying the things and hearing the music and the music is so associated with the show now that I would, I would hate to redesign that in any way. Can I ask the audience who here has listened to Debbie Millman's podcast, Design Matters? Yeah, it, lots of you. Okay. Oh, so there's something that you say at the end of every show. Um, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference or we can do both. Or we can do both. Right. Okay. I know you've been asked this before, but can you please explain what, what you're getting at with that tag? Okay. So when I first started the podcast, I was writing for what was then the world's first design blog. It was called Speak Up. It was founded by Armin Vitt and Brian e. Gomez Palacio, um, two really wonderful humans who I'm still very close to to this day. Um, they started that back in 2003, and I started writing for the blog. And as designers do, we fight over good design versus bad design, good decision-making versus bad, and whether or not, and this is the sort of age-old debate that designers have, whether or not design can change the world. And so we were pontificating, lots of people were pontificating and opinionating on whether or not design can change the world and what we can do or not do. And I piped in with a comment, look, we can talk about making a difference or we can just make a difference. And then Armin conducted a poster contest on the site where people had to pick out a sentence from anybody's writing anywhere on the blog and make a poster and there was going to be this contest. And a woman named Dawn Hancock, the proprietor of a really cool design firm in Chicago called Firebelly, picked out my line, we can talk about making a difference or we could make a difference. And I was like, I really said that? And I went back and I found where I actually said it. And she made this beautiful poster and everybody loved it. And when it came time, it was exactly the same time where I had to come up with a closing statement for the show. And I thought, well, it's a talk show. So we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference. And then I added, or we could do both. And that's how that little tagline began. 
I love it. Thank you for explaining. Thank you. That. Thank you. Can I? Can I, uh, I? There was something else that I, I wanted to say when you were asking about revealing personal things, because I do think that if there's anything that I can share that will help people, it's this. I left. I felt and, and conducted a lot of my life in hiding. I was hiding from being from being who I was. I was hiding from talking about what had happened to me in my life, thinking that if people really knew the real me, that somehow I'd be less likable and less of everything that I was still trying to get more of to begin with. And what I can say is that coming out and also sharing some of the trauma that I experienced and some of the ways that I've tried to work through those experiences and, and sharing them has only made me feel better about myself. And I'm somebody that's constantly struggling about how to feel about who I am. That's one thing I can actually say without a doubt has actually made me feel better, that the sharing has actually brought me closer to people as opposed to further away. And so for anybody that's wondering, should I come out now or should I share this thing I'm ashamed of? Once you share it, you have less shame. And I don't know that there's any way to codify that or make that sort of a formula of any sort. But what I can tell you is that for anybody else that I've known that's also shared, it only makes you feel better and closer to people as opposed to further away and less part of, of the world. Thanks for that too, Debbie. That's very beautiful. Um, because we don't want to be repulsive to those we love, do we? Well, I just think that we, we tend to think that people will not like us when we're being vulnerable. And I think that is probably when people like us the most. Mm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, that you've gone through things in your life that are ugly, especially in your childhood. I've noticed um, a lot of the guests that you talk to on your podcast have also been through something. Or as one said recently, people who, they're people who got so good at being good, almost like a mania to keep being excellent at something. Mm -hmm. And it's often something very specific. Um, this excellence, that kind of, and, and this is your field, you know, is finding these people who really excel at, at a specific thing. Does excellence require a background of trauma? No, I don't think so. Mm. I think excellence requires a, a real commitment to working hard yep. and mastery, learning. But I don't think that one's level of trauma impacts your ability to do great things. Was mastery, mastery as you said, was mastery, ma mastery. <laughs> mastery modelled to you by anybody? No. You just knew? No, I think that I just felt that, no, I, I don't think I knew at all. I just knew that here is where I was and here is what I considered to be mastery. Mastery? Down there. And sort of worked really hard to get to that place. What do all these creative people that you interview have in common? I've been thinking about this a lot. And there's a really interesting dichotomy in terms of what I think they have in common. There are several things. I've interviewed now close to 500 people, some of the world's most creative people. I find that the people that I've spoken to are never satisfied. 
whether it be the hedonistic treadmill, whether it be the metabolizing of success, whether it be the constant need for more um, affirmation, any number of things. Or it could just be the, the desire to just constantly be better. But there, there seems to be a restlessness in almost everybody that I've spoken to. The only two people in the 500 or so that I've interviewed that I can say are just okay or were okay, as is two people that have passed away in the last couple of years, Milton Glaser, who designed the iHeart New York logo, and Massimo Vignelli, who designed the American Airlines logo, and a million other things. And they were both men, white men in their 80s, close to 90s, when I interviewed them. And mm -hmm. so maybe, you know, it could be any number of things, but I think maybe when you're in your 80s or 90s, it's finally like, I have no more Fs to give, and <laughs> this is who I am. Like, take it or leave it. <laughs> so we've got a bit of time before that happens, but right. we can look but, forward but so, to that. So there's, that, there's a restlessness, mm. there's a constant am I going to be able to make something better tomorrow than I did yesterday? Especially if they've made it big, because then it becomes, am I able to do it again? Am I going to be able to hit another ball even further out of the park? And so there's that, I, I don't want my best work to be behind me. So there's that restlessness, some insecurity, but then on the other hand, and this is the part that I've been really thinking about a lot, there's also this sense that despite how insecure they might be or worried about being able to be as good as, they're still willing to put it out in the world. Mm. Everybody that I've interviewed, no matter how good, bad, difficult, easy, however any of it has been, still feels somehow that their work is worthy of being put out in the world. And that's what I'm trying to understand now. That's one of the things that I really want to be able to find the sort of psychological underpinnings of. What is it that gives people the sense that their work, their voice is worthy of being heard? Your curiosity is your restlessness, do you think? Your relentless questioning of people and things. That's your restless energy to, that keeps you going? Hmm. Probably. Mm. Well, I thank you for it. Can oh, we thank Debbie yeah. Millman? Um, thank you. Thank you, everybody. I want to turn to some audience questions Absolutely. now. So I thank love you. audience questions. I do too. Um, Thank you to everybody who submitted your question. I will do my absolute best to get through as many as we can. Um, as a queer woman, do you feel that design nowadays is welcoming of the queer LGBTQI plus community? And what would you want to see more of? Um, I do think that it's become more so. Um, so was it about the design community? Yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting question. The design community, yes. I feel like it really has opened its arms to the LGBTQ plus community. Um, not so much the people of color. And that's what I'd like to see more of. There's not um, nearly the representation in the BIPOC community as there is the LGBTQ plus community. And I'd like to see that change. And I'm trying to do yeah, that too. Whiteness is still the default, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. What advice is, uh, so that question was from Celine, thanks Celine, from Charlotte and Claire. What advice can you give to young women who feel like they're heading towards that treadmill of work and survival? Well, this is probably not going to make the person that asked the question happy. <laughs> but what I would say is start 
your own self-generated project. That's my big advice for all creative people that are employed by someone else. Because when you're working for someone else, I mean, and I don't want to say this in any way, um, I don't want this to sound jaded or in any way pessimistic, but no one is ever going to be thoroughly happy for the rest of their life working for someone else. But also, having your own company, having done both, is really hard mm. because you're constantly worried about peril. You're constantly worried about keeping your clients happy. When you're working for someone else, when you're working for yourself, you're always working for someone else. You're working for a client. You're working for a boss. And there's something over the years of doing that that can get extremely frustrating when you can't make your own design decisions, when you can't do whatever you want. And there's something really wonderful about having your own self-generated practice, your own self-generated work that is incredibly fulfilling. You're only doing what you want to do. So if you are on the treadmill of work and family and everything else, you must carve out, even if it's a half hour a day, Carve out a little bit of time just to make something on your own terms for yourself. And in many ways, that's what Design Matters was. And I got very lucky in that it's now become one of the great gifts of my life, one of, one of the great centerpieces of my life. But it started as a self-generated project that I was essentially doing to save my creative soul. And it did. And so I have the recommendation that I have is for any creative person, take back a little bit of your own power Carve a little bit of time every day that you can and make something just for yourself. If you decide to put it out in the world, great. If you decide not to, great. But at least it's this sacred thing that you're doing to protect and, and really harness and harvest your own creativity. Yeah. That's um, the question from Charlotte and Claire. Just some really good advice that I heard about that actual thing was not every passion that you have as an individual has to be monetized. It doesn't have to become your side hustle. It can just be you doing drawings and never showing anyone if you don't want to. Yeah, you know, you I, don't have to monetize every single yeah. thing. I mentioned Seth Godin before about happiness and pleasure. He has a great book out now and you can one of I did a podcast with him last year about it. It's it's a book called The Practice. And it's really about what questioning and and really investigating our our desire to make things, why do we make things, how do we make things, what is, what is our expectation on making things, and it's a wonderful psychological investigation of why it is we do things and make things the way we do, and really challenges anybody that reads it to do it really first for themselves, mm. and then think about the rest of the world. Yeah, you've got to start there, don't you? From Kiva, what do you think of Brand Australia? How is it being viewed externally and how damaging do you think the pandemic has been to the perception of it? Oof. You can That's be, a trick question. You can, you can be harsh. We can well, handle it. I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I don't know. I think that this is my fourth time to Australia. I love Australia. Um, I've been, I love Melbourne. Melbourne is one of my five top cities. Um, this is my second time in Sydney. It'll be my third time in Melbourne next week. Um, so I, I, I can't tell you other than my own perception of it, which is, um, I think that it's a, it's a wonderful place. I, I'd love it to be a little bit more, um, colorful in terms of the, the people colors. Um, I think that would be a benefit to any society, 
But other than that, I, I, I don't know what it's what the pandemic has done specifically to Australia in relation to the rest of the world. Sure, yeah. From Anonymous, how do you bounce back and reorient yourself when a history of trauma triggers and interrupts your current projects and goals? I cry a lot. Yep. I'm a big crier. Mm. I think that crying is sort of the... So we have a number of different ways we can respond to trauma. And I'm very aware of this because I can get triggered by very specific things. And when that happens, I become that terrifying New York Debbie. And I don't like when I'm like that. Mm. And it's taken a long time to realize that. And so I find that what is underneath all anger is profound sadness and grief. And if I can go to the grief and, and express that, it really helps with managing the, the anger, which is really just a response to the trauma. It's not really a response to what's happening at the moment. It's a response to how it triggers something that I felt that's then being catalyzed in that moment. And so I find that the more I can be in touch with what I'm really feeling, even though it can be a little bit ridiculous to watch a 60-year-old woman cry because, you know, she's waiting on too long a line, <laughs> um, it's a better response than getting angry. <laughs> this might be the last question we, we get to from Alex. What does being enough, being enough, what does it mean and what does it feel like for you? <laughs> There's an assumption in there that I understand and know what that feels like. But I'm going to go back to what, what I talked about before, just being content. Being enough means being content as is. That's like the holy grail of everything, right? Just feeling like this is... This is the way it is. This is how it is. This is me at my very best and most relaxed and most enough. It's being content. That's about being loved? For me, it is. Being good at your job is second to that. It's mostly about having, having like being, wholehearted Being acceptance. good at, at my job gives me a sense of pride, mm. but there's always better. I think when you're truly loved, you feel like you're enough because you can't imagine being loved anymore. Your cup is full. Yeah. My cup runneth over. Oh. On that note, please thank Debbie Millman. Thank you. Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.